All right, good evening, everyone. And it's great to see you here again on Sunday night. I missed you yesterday. I was at a different church preaching, and I was sorry that I was not here, but I'm sure you received a blessing um, from the message that you had yesterday on Revelation 13, and I wished I could have heard it too. And tonight we are going to be doing Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10, and I was talking to the pastor, and we agreed that what we would do is combine chapter 9 and 10 tonight, and then we'll do Daniel 11 part 1 Wednesday night, part 2 Friday night, and then we'll finish this coming Sabbath. It made more sense to finish um, for the Sabbath service than to finish on a Sunday night. So does that sound good? All right, so we're going to be doing chapter 9 and chapter 10 tonight. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings to us, for bringing us out again for another evening to study the book of Daniel. We thank you for how you have been with us in this series so far, for the things that you have taught us. And we pray that you will be with us again tonight as we study these two important chapters of the book of Daniel. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Friday evening, we studied the very important chapter of Daniel 8. And in Daniel 8, we saw the 2,300-day prophecy, which we saw lasted for 2,300 years. Daniel 9 is going to give us a clearer explanation of the 2,300-day prophecy. And we're going to see just how exactly it all fits into the scope of history. So turn with me in your Bibles now to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, why is Daniel studying a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah here in chapter 9? If you recall from Daniel chapter 8, when you come to the end of chapter 8, Daniel is astonished by the vision of the 2300 days, which talks about how it will be 2,300 evenings and mornings or days till the sanctuary is cleansed. And he realizes that this 2,300 days has to include the kingdoms that he's been shown, the ram, the he-goat, and the little horn. So he knows it's going to be for a long time. Now, in Daniel's mind, what is the sanctuary that he knows about? The sanctuary that Daniel knows about is the sanctuary in Jerusalem. So, for Daniel to hear that it's going to be 2,300 years until the sanctuary in Jerusalem is cleansed, that had to be completely astonishing to him. And he's like, that cannot be true. 
How could God be telling me that? And so in chapter 9, he wants to figure out exactly what this means. And he goes back to a reference point in the Bible to remind himself of what God had already promised. Because if you don't understand something and you really want to figure out what it means, what do you do? You go back and you study more and you try to figure something out and you keep studying and, and evaluating and investigating until you can come to the answer. Does that make sense? So in Daniel 9, Daniel, after he hears about this 2,300-year time period, he goes back to the study of the Word of God to try to come to an understanding of what this prophecy is all about. And he studies the prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. And this first year of Darius was 539, 538 B.C. And he's studying Jeremiah 25 and 29. Let's turn there briefly. Jeremiah chapter 25, just to show you that this prophecy is in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 25, we'll read verses 9 through 13. And here it says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and an hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. Now notice verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how many years? 70 years. So this is the prophecy that Daniel was studying. Now, isn't it interesting that we can turn in our Bibles and study the very same prophecy that Daniel himself studied way back in 539 B.C.? So this is the, the prophecy he was studying. And then verse 12. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. So Daniel, he's studying this prophecy and he's saying, God, you promised that it would be 70 years that we would be in captivity and you said that at the end of those 70 years you would publish or punish the kingdom of Babylon and Daniel has seen that part of the prophecy fulfilled notice this Israel was taken captive in 605 BC 70 years later from that would take you to about 536 B.C. And this is 538 B.C. when he's studying this prophecy. But he's already seen Babylon punished. Their kingdom has fallen and has been taken over by the Medes and Persians. Because in Daniel 9, he says this is the first year of Darius the Mede. So... He has seen part of this prophecy fulfilled, and now he's wondering, okay, there's only two more years till 70 years are fulfilled. We should be going back to Jerusalem. What's this thing about 2,300 years till the sanctuary is cleansed? Do you see what Daniel could be thinking? 
Okay, now notice, let's go to Jeremiah 29, just to see a little bit more. And here, Daniel sees, not only will it be 70 years that they will be in captivity, he also sees that they will be able to return. So notice what this passage says. Now we know a good section of this passage. We like to quote this when we talk about God's purpose for our life. So notice the context. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So notice, there is a promise that Israel will return to Jerusalem. Do you see that? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now, how many of you have read that Bible verse in your life? I know the thoughts that I think toward you. And of course, that verse applies through all time. But the immediate context of that passage was God was saying, the thoughts I think toward you, O Israel, are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Verse 12, then shall you call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart and I will be be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I cause you to be carried away captive. Now, when you read Jeremiah 29, you see that God is promising to turn the captivity of Israel, but is there a condition to the turning of the captivity? Yes, there is. The condition is that if God's people will go and pray to him, he will hearken to them. If they seek God, if they search for him with all their heart, then he will turn their captivity. Do you see that? So when you come to Daniel chapter 9, you see exactly what Daniel is doing here. Because if you notice the title of our presentation, it's Daniel's two prayers. And chapter 9 is the first prayer. So Daniel, he goes back and he looks at the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, which says, Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And if you were here on Friday night, you see that he saw a prophecy of a king of fierce countenance uttering dark sentences. And his memory was reminded of Deuteronomy 28, where Moses, just before he died, said, if you are disobedient to God, curses will be poured upon you and a king of fierce countenance will come and destroy you as a people. And so Daniel is thinking, oh no, it's not going to be 70 years. It may be a lot longer than that. And so he goes back to the prophecy of Jeremiah and he reminds God of his word, which says, if you will seek me and search for me with all your hearts, then I will hear you and turn your captivity and cause you to return to Jerusalem. And so Daniel in chapter 9, he's studying that prophecy Let's go on now to verses 3 through 19. We're going to see how Daniel sets his heart toward the Lord, how he seeks God with all of his heart so that God will hear his prayer and that he will turn the captivity of Israel. So notice what Daniel says, starting in verse 3. 
and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, when you read the admonition in Jeremiah 29 to see, search God and to seek him with all of your heart, you see that Daniel takes that seriously because he approaches the God of heaven with supplications, prayer, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Notice he didn't just come to a study of the word of God and he didn't come to pray before the Lord with a light spirit saying, well, may, I'll just maybe offer a, a, a 30 second prayer and God will hear me and maybe our captivity will be turned. No, he actually approaches God with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, when you think of fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, does that remind you of any particular day that the children of Israel observed in their worship of God? If you study the book of Leviticus, you will find that on the Day of Atonement, the children of Israel were commanded to fast and to wear sackcloth and ashes on that day as they came before the Lord. So you could say that Daniel is bringing before the Lord a spirit that the Israelites were supposed to have on the Day of Atonement when they were to come before God. So continuing on, verse 4, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Notice Daniel is not saying, oh God, what do you have against us? We are your chosen people. We profess your name. How come you're treating us so badly? He's saying, no, God, we deserve everything that we've gotten. We have rebelled against you. We have been wicked. We have done wickedly. And he's including himself in this prayer. Verse 6, neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So he's saying we've done wickedly, and we haven't listened to the prophets that you sent to us to give us a message for our time. We say, oh, that prophet, I'm not sure that they're really speaking for the Lord. I think that they don't understand the culture that I live in. They don't understand the challenges that I'm facing. So so I'm not going to listen to the prophet that God sends to speak to me. And Daniel's saying, we haven't listened to your prophets, God. We have done wickedly. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and, to, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. So Daniel is acknowledging we have been scattered from our homeland because we have been disobedient. Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against thee. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Now, 
Do you think, just by reading these verses so far, is it fair to say that Daniel is really seeking God with all of his heart? Is he really humbling himself? Absolutely. He has read the command in the prophecy of Jeremiah that if he will seek me and search for me with all of your hearts, then I will turn your captivity. And Daniel has that spirit in his heart as he approaches God in prayer. Continuing on, verse um, verse 10. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Now, here's the key point. Therefore, based on the fact that we have disobeyed God, based on the fact that we have done wickedly, based on the fact that we have not followed the message from his servants, the prophets, therefore, the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Now, remember, I talked about the curses that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And how Moses said, if you are disobedient, curses will be poured upon you, and a king of fierce countenance, uttering dark sentences, will come to destroy you. And that was seen in Daniel 8. So based on what Daniel saw in chapter 8, he is praying to the Lord and saying, we've done wickedly, and now the curses that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 are being poured upon us. Do you see that? Because Daniel is very clearly saying that here in verse 11. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Continuing on in verse 12. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. So Daniel is saying, you know, God, he allowed us to be taken captive so that we would turn our hearts in repentance to say, you know, our wickedness caused us to be taken captive, and yet here we are, nearly at the end of our 70 years of captivity, and we still haven't turned our hearts back towards God. How much more can God do for us? He allowed us to be taken captive so that we would, be, we would wake up and realize our true condition. And instead we just say, oh, we can't be that bad. We're just witnessing for God now in Babylon. And Babylon's not a bad place to live. Let's just settle down in Babylon forever. And Daniel is saying, no, we have done wickedly. And because of that, God is punishing us for our wickedness. So continuing on, verse 14. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renowned as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem 
from thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now notice what Daniel is doing. Daniel is offering an intercessory prayer on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And he's saying, Lord, I beseech you, according to your righteousness, let your anger and fury be turned away from Jerusalem. We don't deserve it, but because of our wickedness, we are bringing dishonor to your name. And so I'm asking you, because I'm seeking you with all of my heart, that for your name's sake, not because we deserve it, but for your name's sake, I ask that you turn your anger and fury away from us. Because you are the God that brought us up out of Egypt. And surely you didn't bring us up out of Egypt only to allow us to be scattered to the winds of heaven. We are the people that were supposed to have the Messiah come from our midst. So how could you allow us to be scattered? This is what Daniel is saying. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Now see this, Daniel's saying, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary. And he's thinking that the sanctuary that was to be cleansed, it was going to be for so long that the sanctuary in Jerusalem would never be restored anytime soon. He's saying, please cause your face to shine upon the sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Now, do you notice the power in this? prayer, Daniel is drawing upon all of the characteristics that he knows of God. He knows that Israel has done wickedly. He knows that Israel deserves all of the wrath and fury that God could pour upon it for their wickedness. And yet he reminds God of his mercy. And he reminds God that God is full of forgiveness and that God can turn his heart and offer forgiveness to a wicked nation. And so we see in these verses that Daniel sought God by prayer with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He refers to the curse from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 28. This connects to the king of fierce countenance from Daniel 8, which God promised he would send to destroy God's people. And that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 28. It shows up again in Daniel 8. We're going to see this concept again at the end of Daniel chapter 9 when we talk about the abomination of desolation. Let's continue now. So after this prayer that Daniel offers, we come to verse 20. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Now notice, where have we seen Gabriel before? 
we saw Gabriel in the vision in Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 16, where a heavenly being says to Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man, Daniel, to understand the vision. And so here in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, I, Gabriel, the man whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, he flew swiftly to me. So what vision is Daniel referring to here? Gabriel is mentioned for the first time in Daniel chapter 8. The job of Gabriel in Daniel chapter 8 was to help Daniel understand the vision of chapter 8. But by the end of chapter 8, Daniel still does not understand the vision. He was astonished at it. And here, Daniel in chapter 9 wants to understand the vision, and he goes back and he's studying more of the Word of God and more prophecy so that he can understand the new revelation of prophecy that he received. And while he's praying, the same heavenly being, Gabriel, whose job it was to help Daniel understand the vision of chapter 8, shows up again. And it says, at the time of the evening oblation. So Daniel was praying at the time of the evening oblation. And continuing on, verse 22, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee what? Skill and understanding. This is the same thing that he was trying to do in chapter 8, you see? In chapter 8, the heavenly being told Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Daniel doesn't really understand it. He has some idea that the curse from the law of Moses is to be poured out upon Israel. But he is astonished at the vision. None understood it. Chapter 9, he's trying to understand further. He's studying the prophecy of the 70 years of captivity from Jeremiah. And Gabriel shows up again in answer to Daniel's prayer to give Daniel skill and understanding. Continuing on, verse 23. And when did, Dan, when did Gabriel come? It says he flew swiftly. When did he start to come? Verse 23, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So notice this. The God of heaven loves Daniel so much. Daniel is how, how much loved? He's greatly beloved. That as soon as he set his heart to understand, the commandment came forth from the God of heaven, Gabriel. Go back to Daniel, the man whom we love greatly, and give him skill and understanding about the vision. This shows that God is not slack concerning his promises. In Jeremiah 29, he says, If ye will seek me and search for me with all of your heart, I will turn your captivity. I will hear from heaven. And as soon as Daniel began to pray, God caused Gabriel to come down and fly swiftly to answer Daniel's prayer. And you know, Daniel, if you read the prayer of Daniel chapter 9 as it's written out, it's actually not that long of a prayer. Now, we don't know exactly how long he actually prayed, but if you just read the prayer as it's written in Daniel chapter 9, it's actually not that long. But you notice, it's not the length of the, of the prayer that's important. It's the quality of the prayer. 
And the quality of the prayer was powerful. He touched all the heartstrings of God, and he prayed a truly repentant intercessory prayer. And because of that, Gabriel came to give Daniel skill and understanding. And it says, therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, when it says Gabriel appeared, whom he had seen in the vision of Daniel 8, the word for vision in verse 21, where it says, I had seen in the vision at the beginning, that's the word for hazon again, which we talked about in chapter 8. Hazon means what you have seen in vision. It describes what you have seen. So Daniel's saying, when I saw Gabriel in the vision, he's the man that I saw, the heavenly being that I saw. That's the word for vision in verse 21. Gabriel comes to give Daniel further understanding of that vision in Daniel chapter 8 of the 2300 days. But you'll remember there was another word for vision, Marae. And when Gabriel says now in verse 22, I am now come forth, or sorry, verse 23, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. He, the word for vision here is Marae, which again refers to what Daniel heard understand the matter and consider what you heard. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, again, verses 3 through 12, what Daniel saw was a ram, a hego, and a little horn. But then he heard heavenly beings speaking to each other in verses 13 and 14, and what he heard was that unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Does that make sense? So verses 3 through 12 is what he saw. He saw a ram, a hego, and a little horn. And then in verses 13, he didn't see anything. He simply heard two heavenly beings speaking to each other, and he heard them say, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And Gabriel is telling Daniel, understand the matter and consider what you heard. Consider the, the idea of the 2,300 days. This is what I'm coming to give you skill and understanding about. You see that? Gabriel wants Daniel to understand what he heard about the 2300 days. Now let's go to verse 24. What's the very first thing that Gabriel says to Daniel about the 2300 day prophecy, the vision that he heard? Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now what was Daniel concerned about? You remember the beginning of chapter 9? He's studying the prophecy. He's like, I thought that there were 70 years of captivity in Babylon. What's this whole thing about 2,300 days? Which is years, because it's going through several kingdoms. And he knows that it's for a long time. He's like, what's that all about? And he's going back to God and he's saying, I thought it was 70 years. How come it's going to be for so long? And I guess the curse from the law of Moses is being poured upon us because we've been wicked. And now God is telling him, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and 
to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now notice verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now this must have thrilled David Daniel's heart through and through when he heard verse 25 because Gabriel is telling Daniel there is going to be a command to restore and build Jerusalem and not only that the Messiah is going to come so Daniel goes from thinking that the curse of the law of Moses is being poured out now. There is no further chances for Israel to hearing that they have 70 further prophetic weeks of probationary time. And on top of that, during that period of time, the city will be rebuilt and the Messiah will come. Daniel had to have been thrilled. Do you see that? And, in, and let me say this. Would Daniel have received that information if he hadn't offered the prayer here in chapter 9? I don't think so. Daniel, though, he was following what God had said to do. God said, seek me by prayer. Seek me with all of your heart. Then I will turn your captivity. And because of Daniel's prayer... Daniel knew that the 70 years of captivity was about to expire. So based on the prophetic time period that he was living in, he was offering a prayer that was relevant for his time to turn the captivity of his people. And God heard his prayer. And God gave Daniel the privilege of hearing, of being the first one to know the specific time for when the Messiah would come. So... Truly, Daniel was greatly beloved. So here we see 70 weeks are determined. Now, now here's a key point. When we talk about these 70 weeks, what's the reference point? Verse 23, Gabriel is saying, understand the matter. Consider what you have heard. Consider the vision of what you've heard about the 2,300 days. And the very first thing he says is, 70 weeks are determined. But in the Hebrew, the word for determined comes from the word katak, which actually means what it sounds like. It means to cut or to cut off. So Gabriel is saying, understand the matter and consider what you heard about the 2,300 days. 70 weeks are cut off. Now that makes once you understand that, you understand what Gabriel's getting at. Seventy weeks are cut off from the 2300 days. There are 490 days in 70 weeks. So 490 days are cut off from the 2300 days. Does that make sense? Okay. And this command or this prophecy will begin with a command to restore and build Jerusalem. So because no specific point was given or date or decree was given for helping us to understand when the 2300 days would begin in Daniel chapter 8, it must mean when you come to chapter 9 that the 70 weeks is also the starting point for the 2300 days and it's simply cut off from the, the greater time period. 
And the, the beginning point for the prophecy is the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. So, so far, so good. And if you notice carefully, the, this, the 70 weeks are cut up into three specific sections. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then the final week. That makes 70 weeks total. Now, there are three decrees in Ezra because we want to know from the Bible which decree can we show from the Bible is the decree that was to restore and build Jerusalem. There's actually three decrees offered by kings that would be relevant. The first one was by Cyrus in 536 BC, which was just two years after Daniel chapter 9, and this was for the rebuilding of the house of God. Now, you know, people would have rightfully thought this could have been the beginning of the, the 70 weeks and 2300 days. However, there was another decree by Darius uh, another Darius in 519 BC, which advanced the work that had been slowed down by the initial decree in 536 BC. So 17 years later, another decree is made. But finally, there's a third decree by Artaxerxes in the seventh year of his reign, and the Canon of Ptolemy, which is a historical document, dates the seventh year as 457 BC, and the decree was given in the autumn of that year, and you can read the decree, we won't take the time, in Ezra chapter 7, verses 13 through 26. Now this decree offered more than all the other decrees that preceded it, and I'm going to read uh, a statement by Jan Andrews. Jan Andrews was an early Adventist, and he wrote a book, The Command to Restore and Build Jerusalem, and this come from comes from pages 9 and 10. Here he says, to Cyrus belongs the honor of taking the first steps toward the res restoration of Jerusalem by allowing the Jews to return and by giving them authority to rebuild the temple, but the credit of the whole commandment does not belong to him. Darius enlarged the authority given by Cyrus, but he left it incomplete. Now notice this, Artaxerxes finished the commandment for the restoration of Jerusalem by clothing Ezra with full power to do whatsoever should be proper in his sight and to enforce the law of God with adequate penalty. So it's interesting, the decree of Artaxerxes actually gave the Jews the right to live by the law of God again and not to be subject to the law of, of Artaxerxes and of Medo-Persia anymore. So the other decrees hadn't given that. It hadn't given complete restoration. The commandment was complete when Artaxerxes placed his edict in the hands of Ezra. It went forth in its complete form when Ezra, under its ample power, began to enforce the law of God with all its strictness in Jerusalem. And that was 457 BC. So if you look at this graph, and we're not going to go through every point, but if you look at this graph, 70 weeks are cut off from the 2,300 days, and we saw that the 2,300 days had to be years based on all of the kingdoms that were involved, Medo-Persia, Greece, Pagan Rome, and Papal Rome. 70 weeks are cut off from that time, and we see um, that it's, if you read verse 25, for example, it says, that there's going to be seven weeks, three score weeks, three score and two weeks. And then in verse 26, it says, after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. What that means is after the seven weeks and then the 62 weeks, that takes you through 69 
full weeks. After those first 69 weeks, sometime after that, the Messiah will be cut off or he will die. And then in verse 27, the first half, it says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So here's what we know. 457 BC, the decree goes forth. That begins the 70 weeks and the 2,300 years. When we come to the end of the 69 weeks, that is the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And he just so happened to be baptized by John the Baptist in the fall of 27 AD, which is why Jesus in Mark 1 verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus knew, based on prophecy, that his ministry was to begin. Jesus understood prophecy, and based on prophecy, he lived his life accordingly because he understood that when you understand your prophetic identity for the time in which you're living, it drives your mission. And three and a half years later, in the spring of 31 AD, Jesus died right on time. And if you go to John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he's speaking of his death. So Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to die the very next day as the Passover lamb. That he would die on the very day as the Passover lamb, as our sacrifice in 31 AD in the midst of the 70th week. Jesus knew what time it was prophetically. He knew it was time for him to die. And he knew that he was fulfilling the 70 weeks right on time. And then three and a half years later, in 34 AD, Stephen is stoned. You can read that account in Acts chapter 7. And just briefly, I will show you. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned, he gives this powerful message to the Sanhedrin. And in verse 55, it says, but he being, this is Acts 7, verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And then it says, when they heard this, they picked up stones and stoned him to death. Now here's the significance. When you study where Jesus was in heaven after he ascended, it always says that he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It always says that Jesus went to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in our last couple of presentations, we're going to talk about how at the end of probation, Michael or Jesus stands up. And what you see in Acts chapter 7 is that at the end of the 70 weeks, which were cut off for the Jewish nation, as they stoned Stephen, Stephen looks up into heaven in vision. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God because Jesus is standing as a sign that probation has closed for the nation of Israel. Their 70 weeks are up. Their 490 years are up. They are no longer the chosen favored nation of God. Just as Michael will stand up when probation closes at the end of time, Michael is Jesus. Jesus stood up in 34 AD to close probation for the Jews. So let's read again Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. 
Now, if you notice carefully, in verses 26 and 27, there's a part A and a part B. And the part A of 26 matches the part A of 27, and the part B of 26 matches the part B of 27. The part A talks about Messiah being cut off or dying for our sins. The part B talks about how Jerusalem will be destroyed. So verses 26 and 27. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And, the, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So here we see clearly Jesus was cut off as the Messiah sometime after the 69 weeks, and then verse 27 tells us exactly when he was cut off. It was in the midst of the week. So that makes it very clear. The sacrifice and the oblation ceased. We study in the New Testament and the Gospels how that when Jesus died on the cross, the, the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place and the temple was torn in two, showing that those sacrifices were no longer relevant. So Jesus was cut off in the midst of the 70th week. The sacrifices were no longer binding. And he provided a way for salvation. He confirmed the covenant making it possible for each one of us who by faith accept him as our sacrifice to receive his salvation. And this is the prophecy that showed when Jesus would come to provide salvation for us. Now Daniel received this message in about 538 BC, a good 570 years before this actually happened. But it happened right on time. And now we are 2,000 years past that time. Now, if the Bible and if the prophecy of the first leg of the 70 weeks was accurate about when the Messiah would come, don't you think that the end of the 2,300 days would also be accurate? Absolutely. And I'm just going to give a brief explanation of how the 2,300 days... And let me go back to the slide how the 2300 days reached its fulfillment perfectly. And I'll do this briefly. Jesus, as our sacrifice, fulfilled the first leg of the 70-week prophecy perfectly. His ministry began right on time. As we said, Mark 1.15 shows that he was baptized and he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then three and a half years later, he says, the hour has come when he was crucified because he was crucified as our Passover lamb on the day of Passover. And as the body of unleavened bread that was broken, he rested in the grave on the feast of unleavened bread, which was on the seventh day of the week. Friday had been on what was the sixth day of the week, the year that he died. And then he was resurrected on the first day of the week at, as that day was the day of the offering of first fruits or the wave sheaf offering. So he was type meeting anti-type. He was the perfect fulfillment of all of the Jewish festivals, and he fulfilled those festivals on the very day in the fulfillment of the 70-week prophecy. And after he died, after he ascended to heaven 50 days later, Pentecost was poured out, 
it was 50 days after he died, which was 10 days after he ascended, the apostles spent 10 days praying, and then Pentecost was poured out in the manifestation of the early reign of the Holy Spirit. So again, type met antitype pers uh, perfectly, and those were known as the spring festivals of the Jewish system. But there were also the fall festivals. And in the fall festivals, you had the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Trumpets took place 10 days before the Day of Atonement. Now, when early Adventists, who were known as Millerites, studied the 2300-day prophecy, they came to an understanding that the 2300-day prophecy would end sometime between 1843 and 1844. Initially, they thought 1843. And it's interesting, they begin preaching this message about 10 years before 1844. Just as the Feast of Trumpets was 10 days before the Day of Atonement, the Millerites began preaching this message 10 years before 1844. And then they actually figured out the exact day that the 2300-day prophecy would reach its fulfillment. Here's why. They figured out that if Jesus fulfilled the spring festivals on the very day, it would only make sense that the 2,300-day prophecy would be fulfilled on the very day. Do you see that? And the Day of Atonement was one of the fall festivals, and the Day of Atonement in 1844, according to the Jewish calendar, fell on October 22. And it was not as if there was nothing going on during that time period. In fact, when the early Adventists or Millerites preached this message, there was much activity and they preached this message with great power. And when the date was set for October 22, it was set on August 12 of 1844. After that point in time, two months before, there was great power leading up to October 22. And nearly the whole world knew that people believed that October 22, 1844, was the fulfillment of the 2,300-day prophecy. Because this was such an important day that God wanted the world to know. Now, the Millerites made a mistake. They thought that this referred to the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. They thought that the sanctuary was the earth that would be cleansed by fire. And as we saw in our study last time, the sanctuary is the sanctuary in heaven. Just as there was a sanctuary on earth, it was a pattern of the one in heaven, and that is the one that has been in the process of cleansing since 1844. And just as Jesus fulfilled the 70 weeks right on time, the 2300 days were fulfilled right on time, which tells us we are living in a very special part of Earth's history ever since 1844. We have the privilege to be alive after the fulfillment of the 2300 days. Amen? What a privilege that we are alive at this time of Earth's history. Now, briefly, let me wrap up Daniel 9 and then we'll do chapter 10, which is a very short section. So let me read verses, the, the last half of verses 26 and 27 again, or just point it out. We see in the last half of verse 26, it says, The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who do you think that might be referring to? The people of the prince. You know, the word prince and the word king are often used interchangeably. 
So if you remember, Daniel 9 is explaining Daniel 8 in the vision, right? And in Daniel 8, you had the king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences, who was going to come based on the curse from the law of Moses. And what Daniel is being shown here is that when the probation of Israel reaches its conclusion, a power will come that will destroy Israel. Specifically, he will come and destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that is the temple. And it talks about how the end shall be with a flood and desolations. And then in verse 27, it talks about the overspreading of abominations. He shall make up desolate. This is referring to the abomination of desolation. This is referring to when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you recall what we studied from Daniel chapter 8, when the king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences is mentioned, it is mentioned in the explanation section of Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, you initially have a ram, a hego, and a little horn. And so Daniel wants to know, what, what's this talking about? And then Gabriel tells him, the ram is Medo-Persia, the he-goat is Greece, and then there's a king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences. And we know that the kingdom that followed Greece was Rome. So here you see that Rome would be the king of fierce countenance that would come in fulfillment from the curse of the law of Moses to destroy the, the Jewish nation because they were disobedient to God. And Daniel 9 shows that when the probation of the 70 weeks reached its completion, this king or prince would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And in fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, it talks about how the parents will be eating their children, and that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. They surrounded the city, they cut off its food supply, and parents started eating their children to have food. Can you imagine how bad that was? But it was an exact fulfillment of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, because Israel rejected Christ over and over again, they rejected the prophets, and then they rejected Jesus, the Messiah, when he came. And so there was nothing more that God could have done to save Israel. And, you know, Jesus himself refers to this abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15. He says, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then let him, which is in Judea, flee to the mountains. And he, he says, whoso readeth, let him understand. So this was a prophecy that Jesus said you should read and understand. So that's, in a nutshell, Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel's first prayer. He prays earnestly. He follows the counsel of the Lord to set his heart fully to God. And while he was praying, God had already answered his prayer. He sent Gabriel to give him skill and understanding. And Daniel now understands, oh, from those 2,300 years, 70 weeks or 490 years are going to be cut off from that period of time to give us probation and the Messiah will come to bring salvation. But unfortunately, Jerusalem is still going to be destroyed. So when you come to the end of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has an understanding of the first leg of the 2300-day prophecy. He understands what's going to happen during the first 490 years. But he still doesn't understand 
what's going to happen at the end of the 2300 days. So now, let's go to Daniel's second prayer, and we'll go quickly through chapter 10. It's, it's a very short chapter. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, this was 536 BC, which was the year that Cyrus gave his decree to restore the temple, and this was the year that the 70 years of captivity were to be up. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. This is the last vision that Daniel had before he died, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel at the outset, and just so you know, 10 through 12 is a continuous stream of thought. Daniel says at the very outset of chapters 10, 11, and 12, I understand, based on what I've seen, that this is for a long time. So what he's saying, I understand now what this 2,300-day prophecy is all about. It's true, and I understand it. It's going to be for a long time. But now we're going to see how he got to that conclusion, starting in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning how long? Three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So in Daniel chapter 9, you get the idea. He sat down and he said, okay, I'm going to study the prophecies to try to figure out this, this 2300-day prophecy. And as soon as he was praying, God gave him the answer. But here he says, I was mourning, fasting, and praying for three full weeks. And when you come actually to verse 12, you see that he set his heart to understand and Gabriel came for his words. So he was praying. He was seeking to understand again. He, and Gabriel came for his words. Now, in chapter 9, clearly we see he was concerned about what would happen to the nation of Israel and God answered that question. Now he wants to know something more and we see that he comes to an understanding that it's going to be for a long time. This is his second prayer. Now, let's go to verses 4 through 6. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was beside the, uh, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as of lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So notice, Daniel has been praying for three full weeks, and suddenly, while he's by this river, a heavy heavenly being appears to him. Who do you think this heavenly being might be based on his description? He has the appearance, his face is like lightning, his eyes are lamps of fire, his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, his voice like the voice of a multitude. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it becomes very clear that this is Jesus. Because you see in verse 13, you have the Son of Man. Verse 14, his hairs were white like wool, his, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So now, 
in Daniel 10, which is setting up the final vision described in chapter 11 and 12, as Daniel has his final vision. He's been fasting, mourning, and praying for three weeks because he wants to understand what's going to happen at the end of the 2300 days. Jesus himself says, you know what, this vision is so important that I am going to come down myself and show myself to Daniel and give him the vision because I want him to know that I have heard his prayer and I want him to know that his uh, that the understanding of what will happen at the end of the 2300 days is of such importance that I am coming myself to reveal it to him. And so here we see the importance of Daniel 10, 11, and 12. And you know, it's interesting. Um, I've grown up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Many people have studied Daniel 2, 7, and 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 12. But a lot of people skip over chapter 11. Yet Jesus was the one who came and revealed this vision to Daniel. So that shows that we should be studying this vision. Amen? Amen. And we will do that on Wednesday and Friday night. So here we see Jesus Christ appears to Daniel. So if Jesus appears to give the, the vision, how important is this vision? It's of utmost importance. So let's keep going. And again, this was the vision by Hittichel. Ellen White says, Testimonies to Ministers, pages 112, 113. The light that Daniel received from God was given especially for these last days. The visions he saw by the banks of the Uli and the Hittichel, the great rivers of Shinar, are now in process of fulfillment, and all the events foretold will soon come to pass. So what we're going to study when we go through Daniel 11 and 12, we're going to see that they are soon to come to pass. So let's read verses 7 through 12 of Daniel chapter 10. Let me get my spot here. Okay. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. So here's the point. Daniel sees the vision in chapter 10, and it's going to be described in verbal form in chapter 11. But he sees it. Christ reveals it to Daniel here in chapter 10, continuing in verse 9. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Verse 10, and behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Now we remember hearing that in chapter 9, right? Gabriel came to Daniel and he said, you are a man greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard and I am come for thy words. So when did this heavenly being want to come and give Daniel the answer to his prayer? Did he want to just say, okay, I'm going to make Daniel wait this time. I'm going, to give him, I'm going to make him wait three weeks, and that will show him that I just don't answer prayer as fast every time. That's not what the heavenly being says here. He says, I came from the first when you set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before God, and I've, I've come for your words. So, first point, only Daniel sees the vision. Heavenly being touches him. 
And then Daniel is told he is greatly beloved. This is Gabriel again. And Ellen White says so as well. Because he addresses Daniel in the same way. So Jesus appears to him. He gives him the vision. Daniel falls asleep. And then Gabriel then wakes up Daniel. And now God commissions Gabriel to again explain to Daniel what he's seen in vision. And Gabriel came because Daniel prayed for understanding. Daniel realized, based on chapter 9, hey, if I set my heart to understand, and if I seek God with all of my heart, he will hear me. Now notice, Daniel did not say... After he had prayed for two or three days, he's like, you know what? Last time, the first day that I set my heart to understand, Gabriel came to give me the words. How come after two or three days, he hasn't come to hear me and, or, and give me an understanding? I guess I'll just quit. God's not hearing my prayers anymore. Is that what Daniel did? No, he just kept praying. He didn't know how long it would take, but he prayed for three full weeks until God came and sent him the answer and gave him understanding. And then in verses 13 and 14, we are going to see why it took three weeks. Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. How many days? Twenty-one days. How, long, how many weeks is that? three weeks. So Gabriel came to give Daniel understanding, but he's being withstood by the king of Persia. So Gabriel can't give Daniel the understanding because the king of Persia, who is Cyrus, is being a roadblock. And then verse 4, continuing on, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So here's what happens. Daniel starts praying. God sends the command, Gabriel, go help Daniel understand the vision. The problem is, in order for Daniel to receive understanding of the vision, the king of Persia had to be in lockstep with God. He had to be following God's purposes. And Cyrus was the king of Persia, and God was depending on Cyrus to make the initial decree that would be used as a building block for the 2300-day prophecy and the 70-week prophecy to begin. But if Cyrus didn't go along and make the decree, God couldn't give Daniel the understanding because there would be a roadblock to the beginning of that prophecy. And so here's where we get a look into the great controversy because Satan had to know, hey, Cyrus is the one who will give the decree and if I can get him to not make the decree, then Daniel won't receive light for what's going to happen at the end and I can prevent this prophecy from even happening. And so Daniel, without knowing the struggle that's going on, prays for three whole weeks and finally Michael, and I'm not going to take the time, but Michael, who is the archangel, who is Jesus who raises the dead at the last day, he says, okay, Jesus says, enough is enough. Daniel's been praying for three weeks. I have all power. I can turn the heart of the king. And so Jesus himself comes down from heaven. He turns the heart of the king of Cyrus so that Cyrus will go forward with the decree. And once he has set that matter, Right, then he reveals himself to Daniel and gives Daniel the vision because now Cyrus's heart is set in the right way. And now the vision can go forward and Daniel can understand what's going to happen with the 2300 days. And because of that, now Gabriel says, I am now 
come to show what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for many days. You know the 2,300 years? I'm going to show you what's going to happen all the way down to the end of that time. So, Ellen White says of Revian Herald, December 5, 1907, in the 10th chapter of Daniel is given a glimpse of this mighty struggle waged for many years between the forces for good and the forces for evil. In this vision of the prophet, the angel Gabriel declared, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. For three weeks, Gabriel had been wrestling with the powers of darkness and seeking to counteract the influences at work on the mind of King Cyrus. Before the contest closed, Christ himself came to Gabriel's help. All that heaven could do in behalf of the people of God was done. The victory was finally gained, and the forces of the enemy were held in check all the days of Cyrus. You know, all that heaven could do, God is willing to do that for his people today as well. But we need to earnestly seek God in prayer the same way that Daniel did. Now is not the time to be offering half-hearted prayers. We need to go back to the life of Daniel and see how did Daniel pray? Because God heard his prayers. And we see Daniel would pray with repentance, with his heart fully turned to God. And God heard his prayers. Now, in wrapping up, verses 15 through 21, I'm not going to read those verses. Basically, what happens in those verses as we wrap up is Daniel was so shaken by what he had seen and what Christ revealed to him in vision, he wasn't sure he wanted Gabriel to tell him in verbal form what it actually meant. And Gabriel says, it's okay, I'll strengthen you to receive it. You can receive it if I strengthen you. And so Daniel says, okay, fine. You can strengthen me to receive the vision. And so Gabriel says, okay, I will strengthen you to receive it. And then at the end, he shows him, I'm still working with the king of Persia, but after that, I'm going to strengthen the king of Greece. Reminding Daniel, remember what I told you in chapter 8? After Medo-Persia comes Greece. And then we get into the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11, which we will start Wednesday night. But I hope this shows you that just how significant Daniel 11 is. We see that Christ himself had to settle a conflict with the king of Cyrus because certainly Satan was working with all of his force to counter Gabriel as they were both working on the mind of Cyrus. Finally, Christ himself came and settled the conflict because of the prayer of Daniel. And because of the prayer of Daniel, then this vision, this last vision, showing what would happen to God's people in the latter days was revealed. So as we wrap up, Daniel 9, Daniel's prayer is heard immediately. In Daniel 10, it takes three full weeks. In both cases, Daniel was earnestly studying prophecy to gain further understanding. Daniel 9 shows what would happen to God's people, literal Israel, at the end of 70 weeks or 490 years. Daniel 10 introduces the concept that the vision of Daniel 11 shows what happens to God's people, spiritual Israel, at the end of the 2300 days or the latter days. And Daniel 10 gives us a look into the controversy between Christ and Satan. Satan knew the importance of the beginning of the 2300 days. He knew that the coming of the Messiah and the cleansing of the sanctuary were linked to the beginning of that prophecy. Thus he worked with all of his might to prevent it from starting. But the prayer of Daniel allowed Christ to settle the struggle. So the end time application, God is counting on his last day people to earnestly strive to understand the prophecies and to pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled for our time. 
God will be able to complete his work when we set our hearts to understand and to pray through repentance and humiliation in the same way that Daniel did. Daniel prayed for a short period in chapter 9. He prayed for three full weeks in chapter 10. How long should we expect to pray to see the final victory, to see the final consummation, to see Jesus come back in the clouds of heaven? Because you see, we should be studying the prophecies and earnestly trying to understand when is Jesus going to come back? And we should be humbling ourselves so that Jesus can come and praying that he will come in our lifetime. So I hope that you have a better understanding now of the two prayers of Daniel in chapter 9 and 10, of the 70-week prophecy, and of the setting up of the final vision of Daniel 11. So Wednesday night, we're going to do part 1 of chapter 11, Friday night, part 2, and we'll finish on Sabbath with Daniel chapter 12. I'm just going to offer a word of prayer, and then we'll have a, um, a song to close. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message in Daniel 9 and 10 and of the prayers of Daniel. Thank you for his faithfulness in praying. And I pray as we continue to study from Daniel, as we see what will happen to God's people in the latter days, may we understand and may we live the lives you would have us to live to be ready for that time. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.